0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me ask you how do you act when someone confronts you in your sin? If presumption is pride, posing as piety, defensiveness is pride posing as righteousness. When we become defensive at another's rebuke, we, like Saul, tend to employ two strategies. First, we try to divert the attention away from our sin, saying, well, you know, I might have done that wrong, but look at what's going on, right? Look at my circumstances. Look what's happening. You know, what I did really isn't so bad compared to what's going on right now. Second, we can downplay our sin. We divert away from our sin, then we downplay our sin. We'll say something like, well, you know, what What I did is really not that bad, comparatively speaking. Right? There are others that do a lot more worse sins than me. So why are you coming to rebuke me about this one little sin? That's not a big deal. And I had the right motives, right? When another person corrects you, let me warn you to reject that carnal impulse to start defending yourself. Sit still, learn to still your tongue, listen to the rebuke and remember that defensiveness is pride. Saul makes a ploy to downplay his sin. He says, I was seeking the favor of the Lord. Give me a break already, right? I got, I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to get the right motives. And then he diverts away from his sin. Look at how bad everything is. But Saul does not take ownership of his sin. How different is Saul from his soon-to-be successor, David, when the prophet Nathan confronts David in his sin? Does David make any excuses? Does he usher in his self-defense? No, he is humble and contrite of heart, right? The sort of man who seeks the heart of the Lord isn't a perfect man, but he is a repentant one. And making excuses is the opposite of repentance. Saul thinks that he has the authority to act without the instruction of the Lord, and this sin exposes that unrepentant and rebellious heart in King Saul. So thus, Saul's kingdom will not continue because of Saul's disobedience. And Samuel foreshadows this replacement king that will soon come as the Lord will replace Saul with a man after his own heart. And most soberingly, in our passage, we see that the the Samuel departs from Saul as an expression of God's rejection. Saul presumed that he could go into battle without the word of the Lord, and now he will do just that. Saul goes to war without the Lord's prophet. So Saul assembles his army. We're told it's a rather piddly group of 600 against the Philistine horde. So they traveled to to Gibeah to to set up their encampment about two miles away from the massive Philistines with this deep ravine, this deep chasm between them. And so to stress the, the further disadvantage that Israel has as they prepare for this military conflict, the chapter actually closes out in chapter 13 with informing us that the Philistines had a functional monopoly on all the blacksmiths in the region. The 600 men of Israel will go to fight the thousands with plowshares and sickles. Israel is not only vastly outnumbered, but they're also vastly underpowered when it comes to military technology. By all outward appearances, by the time we get to chapter 14, we are expecting a bloodbath. At the start of chapter 14, we see that some space is given by the narrator to give the scene as the secret plan begins to be hatched. So the drama sort of ramps up. Here's some fascinating, wonderful, exciting literature here as we read this account of this battle. Let's begin in chapter 14 verse 1. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side," but he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. When thinned the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz, and the name of the other, Siniah the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan was introduced at the start of chapter 13 as a successful military leader, but it's not until 1 Samuel 14 that the narrator gives us his real identity. This is Saul's son. And as we'll see, Jonathan in this chapter is going to exhibit all the sorts of qualities that Israel needs in a godly king. Confidence, initiative, a fear of the Lord, wisdom, active faith in the Lord. Jonathan is the king Israel needs, not Saul, but the tragedy of what happened in chapter 13 is that the consequences of Saul's sin leads to the overthrowing, the rejection of Saul's dynasty. And so as a result, we find out that we know because of chapter 13 that the Lord will have to look for a king outside of Saul's family to replace him. He will find another, a man after God's own heart. But Jonathan, as we'll read in this text, seems to be the sort of man that points to his good friend, King David. So chapter 14 reveals that twist, that this Jonathan, so successful, so faithful, won't be the king. But nevertheless, The Lord will use Jonathan to bring gracious salvation to his people. So over these chapters, we see that Jonathan begins to replace Saul as Israel's military leader, but David will replace Jonathan as heir to the throne. Jonathan strategizes a special ops raid on the Philistine camp. He and his armor bearer are going to go and attempt a surprise attack. So Saul is bunkering down in the pomegranate cave He's not told about the plan. No one's told about the plan. And with Samuel gone, we see that Saul actually recruits another spiritual advisor. And who is this guy? What's Ahijah? Phineas' great grandson. Saul replaces Samuel with the rejected household of Eli. That's not an encouraging sign. So the description of Ahijah's family background, including the mention of Ichabod draws our mind back to 1 Samuel 4 at the great battle at Aphek where Hophni and Phinehas tried to use the Ark of God to force God's hand to military victory. At this point in the narrative, you've been reading through 1 Samuel, you're reading this and it is scary because history seems to be repeating itself yet again. But here we see that the Lord is gracious and the secret mission of Jonathan will become the Lord's means of rescuing his people. So as Jonathan and his armor bearer prepare to cross this ravine, it will be a treacherous journey. One cliff was called Bozaz, which means slippery. The other, Senna, which means thorny. Doesn't sound like the leisurely stroll to make this secret invasion. The two men will have to descend down one ridge and only, only to climb out on the other side, all while wearing their armor and their weapons, mind you. So they're Secretly infiltrating. And once they're there, their plan is with the two of them to launch a surprise attack upon the garrison of the Philistines. Two men against tens of thousands. It's the sort of mission impossible that would cause even Tom Cruise to hesitate. However, Jonathan acts with courage courage that comes from true faith in the Lord. Let's read verse six and seven. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, referring to the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish, behold, I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan's faith is a confident faith, but it's also a humble faith, isn't it? His faith does not seek to force God's hand, but ultimately rests upon the Lord's sovereign will. It may be that the Lord will work for us, Jonathan says. And Jonathan isn't doubting God's ability here in the slightest, but he is submitting the outcome to the will of God. Nevertheless, Jonathan is not a passive individual but he demonstrates the sort of act of faith, trusting the Lord ultimately with the results. You know, the spiritual kind of ethos of Christianity today in our country tends to think that the intensity of faith can compel God to action. I've heard it said that conditioning our prayer requests, as Jesus did, with nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Some people would say, well, that's a lack of faith, a sign of weak faith. Instead, they say, well, we're to pray Powerfully. Jesus said you can move mountains. So, so pray with force and demand that God act as you pray. Now we should be bold and persistent in our prayers. The scriptures command us to do that. But if you sound like you're bossing the Lord around as you pray, you may be very well committing the sins of presumption, like the like King Saul did. Instead, we have to recognize our place. We pray with humility. We submit ourselves to God's infinite wisdom in faith. Jonathan is acting in faith, but he humbly submits to the Lord's will. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That expresses the boldness of prayer, but also the humility that ought to accompany prayer, that ought to characterize God's people. But notice here Jonathan's faith in God's ability to act. Though he rests in God's sovereignty, he knows beyond any shadow of doubt, he knows that God can deliver. So notice the contrast between Saul and Jonathan here. Saul was worried about the numbers of his forces. They're dwindling. It's getting smaller. How are we going to win without a big army to match the Philistines? Jonathan knows ultimately that it's the Lord who saves. The numbers don't matter. Jonathan is the sort of leader who doesn't trust in numbers. His trust is in the Lord. And even that is a lesson good old King David forgot at the end of his life when he sinfully takes a census. You see, as Jonathan climbs out to the Philistine encampment, the response of the Philistines will be an indicator of what God will lead him to do and whether to launch this attack. And so if the Philistines tell him to wait, he won't venture into attack. But if they invite him to come over, then he will launch his all-out assault. And what do the Philistines do? Well, they invite him over. So he climbs out of the trench with his armor bearer and they start going to town, killing 20 plus men. And the surprise attack triggers a divinely inspired panic among the Philistines. The earth begins to quake. And while the army of Israel had been trembling before the Philistines, now it's the Philistines trembling before these two men of faith. A few miles away, We're told in the text of the watchmen see the commotion unfold at the Philistine encampment. Something was happening. Something was going on over there. And they realized at that point that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. But Saul is the sort of man who acts when he should pray and prays when he should act. And so instead of joining the battle immediately, he gives Ahijah, the priest, two commands. Bring the ark of God over and withdraw your hand from the ephod. Most likely what Saul's doing here is he's leaning on the dice of Israel, Urim and Thummim, to determine the will of the Lord, whether he should go and fight or not. Outside of the prophets, and Saul lost his, casting lots with dice were the only divinely sanctioned way for Israel to determine the Lord's will. But Saul misses here. He's so spiritually obtuse he misses the clear evidence that God was presently at work saving Israel through Jonathan. And Saul's passivity and delay yet again illustrate his incompetence as king. But eventually Saul joins in the battle and the Philistines didn't have a chance. You're a military strategist expert here. You can see why the Philistine army fell apart. Jonathan and his armor bearer pressed the army from one side. Saul brings the other forces from the other side. Israelites were told in the text, who had joined the Philistines, flipped sides and started fighting the Philistines from within the camp. And then the Israelites from the surrounding regions that were hiding in holes, they come out. So the Philistines are being attacked from within and from every front of the battle. And in the confusion, they begin to slaughter themselves. So Jonathan led the charge. But look at verse 23. It makes it clear that it is the Lord who saved Israel that day. It's the Lord who did it. Jonathan's faith points us ultimately to the one man who saved sinners, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jonathan descended into the ravine and ascended in victory on the other side, he points to a future king who will descend into the dead only to rise again in resurrected victory. Jonathan points to the achievement of God's salvation brought by Christ. And so does God work salvation for us through his son. Jesus wins the battle. Jesus triumphs over the grave, sealing our victory and our salvation. And so even though the Lord brought a great victory for Israel, the effects of that victory are limited because of Saul's foolishness. Here was the chance to wipe out the Philistines once and for all. But Saul's leadership is foolishness. And Saul's rash vow not only leads people into sin, but further compounds that sin by seeking to kill the one the Lord has brought salvation through. It's it's astonishing in his foolishness. Look at verse 24 of chapter 14. (coughs) And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, curse be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Micmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Saul's foolishness robbed his soldiers of the sustenance they needed to fight effectively. Not present when Saul made the vow, Jonathan begins to eat the honeycomb and he was revived from his exhaustion. And I'm sure he was exhausted after all the climbing and slaughtering. But when he learns of his father's rash vow, he recognizes that the effects of the victory that the Lord had used him to bring has been limited because his father enforced a fast upon his army. The soldiers became so starved that when they actually finally do get the opportunity to eat, they become so ravenous with hunger that they immediately pounce on the spoil, kill it right there, and start eating meat with blood which was a massive, massive violation of the law, repeated over and over again, eating meat with blood was strictly forbidden. Saul's foolishness created an opportunity for his people to sin. To correct this sin, Saul quickly builds an altar to the Lord and offers sacrifices, thereby draining the, the blood from the meat and satiating the people's hunger. But here we see Saul rather clumsily begin to take on the role of a prophet and exercise spiritual leadership over the people. It's interesting as we follow Saul's presumption throughout this text. In his first presumption, Saul tried to act without the word of the prophet. In the second presumption, as we will see, Saul attempts to become the prophet himself. And his play acting as a prophet like Moses almost leads to the death of the man that the Lord chose to bring deliverance through. Let's keep reading in verse 36 of chapter 14. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer in that day. And Saul said, Come here all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So The people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul sought spiritual guidance for what to do next, but we're told that the Lord did not answer him. He attributes the Lord's silence to some sort of sin in the people, and he uses Urim and Thummim to cast lots to determine who has sinned. The people of Israel stand on one side. Saul and Jonathan stand on the other. The lot falls on Saul and Jonathan. Lord's silence must be attributed to one of their sins. So he cast lots again between him and Jonathan and the lot fell on Jonathan. Now we know reading this story that the Lord is silent because of Saul's sin of presumption. But here we see Saul perform his best impersonation of the prophet Samuel by repeating the same prophetic injunction he just heard from Samuel the chapter prior. Tell me, what have you done? Jonathan confesses. All I've done is eat honey out of the ignorance of his father's rash vow. And then Saul, filled with bloodlust, prepares to execute his son for breaking the vow that Jonathan knew nothing about. Saul's spiritual blindness, I hope you're beginning to see, is very severe. He fails to recognize his own sin as the cause for the Lord's silence, and then he puts the blame on Jonathan, the very man the Lord called and used to bring salvation to his people. The question was raised earlier in Samuel. Is Saul among the prophets? Is he also among the prophets? Well, he is presumptuously play-acting as one. He's not a very good prophet, is he? Notice the irony. Saul is a prophet who cannot hear from the Lord, but nevertheless prepares to usher divine judgment on the man the Lord used to save his people. Even the people can see Saul's foolishness and they protest against Saul and they rise to protect Jonathan from his father's bloodlust. Spiritual arrogance combined with spiritual ignorance is a deadly combination. And yet, we often quickly make those same presumptions, don't we? We are so quick. How quick are we to judge the Bible while being ignorant of what it says? How quickly can we assert knowledge of God's will when we lack God's word in our lives? How quick is the world to judge Jesus, eager to condemn the very one the Lord has raised up to deliver us from our sins? Saul's arrogant presumption is our presumption. And it continues to escalate. And in chapter 15, the death knell is given to Saul's kingdom. Not only will Saul be the last of his dynasty, but the Lord will remove Saul as king and anoint another. At the start of 1 Samuel 15, the word of the Lord comes to Saul through Samuel to execute judgment on Amalek. And the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe, south of Judah, made up of raiders and plunderers. They attacked Israel in Exodus chapter 17. And in Exodus, the Lord declares war against them. And the Lord had commanded them in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, to wipe out the Amalekites, but Israel did not do so. So now the Lord brings his word to Saul to fulfill the word of the Lord, given in the past, and finish the job. Now, the Lord is explicit in the text, beginning in chapter 15, that the Amalekites are to be wiped out. The Lord tells Saul not to spare anything alive. Men, women, children, infants, ox, sheep, camel, donkey, all of them are to be killed. All is to be given to the Lord as an expression of his judgment and wrath. This was a practice called imposing the ban in which everything was set aside for the Lord. Now, in the United States of America, it would be a war crime, rightly so, for, any, for our country to go to another country and do this sort of thing. But the Lord has the prerogative to make such judgments over every human life. The Lord gives life, and the Lord has the right to take away life. And thus, he alone can command such slaughter. But the slaughter pictured here in the Amalekites and in so much of the conquest in the book of Joshua is an expression of God's perfect justice against sin. The command to crush the Amalekites is a brutal reminder of God's judgment against all of us. The slaughter is what every human being deserves and it is only by God's patience and kindness that any one of us are permitted to take our next breath. God's word is clear. Saul, you are to wipe them out. But Saul doesn't obey it. Saul spares Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the livestock he keeps. Verse 9 stresses Saul's flagrant disobedience. Look at chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep. And of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul violates God's command. How will the Lord respond? The presumptuous pride of Saul becomes increasingly sinister over these last three chapters as he begins to more and more openly defy the Lord. Let's read what happens. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites where the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. The Presumption of Saul has produced within him over time a callous obliviousness to his own disobedience. When Samuel first approaches him, Saul at least projects, he assumes that he had obeyed the Lord. He assumes that he was faithful. Or at least he wants to give Samuel the impression that he was faithful. And as Samuel inquires about the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen, we see the sinister presumption of of, of Saul has turned into fragrant idolatry at this point. He now considers his ways as better than God's word. According to his judgment, Saul says, well, I'll keep the best alive for sacrifice to the Lord. That's better than doing what God actually told me to do. And as Saul is confronted in his sin, we see Saul exhibit the sort of worldly sorrow of getting caught, but not the godly sorrow of true repentance. Again, we see Saul make excuses. Saul presents himself as obedient, as a way to justify himself. He tells Samuel, I obeyed the Lord. The Lord gave me a mission, mission accomplished. And Saul's mind, so deluded by the pride of his heart, he thinks, as he's going toe-to-toe with God's prophet, he thinks he has the moral high ground. And then the blame shifting starts to happen. Well, it's the people's idea to keep the spoil, right? It was their idea, not mine. I just kind of went along with it. And even still, Saul presents his presumptuous disobedience as an expression of his piety. He left the livestock. I left them alive to offer a sacrifice to the Lord way to worship the Lord. I'm trying to bring glory to God here, Samuel. You want me to not bring glory to God? But the Lord was explicit. The Lord commanded all was to be given to the Lord. By offering a sacrifice, Saul and the people could provide a lip service to the Lord while getting to feast on the best livestock for themselves. Here we see Saul become just like Hophni and Phinehas, taking What belongs to the Lord and selfish indulgence? But the Lord rebukes Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul's presumption, the Lord says, is iniquity and idolatry. Why? Because it's a rejection of the Lord's word. And how many people do the same today? How many people, just like Saul, think that they can appease God by their religious observance, by their giving of money in the offering plate, all the while living in outright disobedience to the word of the Lord? How many people attempt to honor the Lord by disobeying what he says? How many of us do we do what we think is right only to ignore what God has said? When confronted, Saul confesses his sins, but he continues to shift the blame. It becomes clear as the text reads that Saul's confession is not true repentance. He is a prideful man who wishes to maintain his reputation rather than humble himself in a broken and contrite spirit. Let's keep reading. In verse 24 of chapter 15, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel turned back after Saul. and Saul bowed before the Lord. Saul wishes Samuel to go with him as an indicator of God's favor before the people. Saul wants to hide his transgressions, not repent of them. Saul isn't broken broken over his sin, but he's clinging to his public image. He grovels at Samuel's feet. He tears away Samuel's robe. So will Saul's kingdom be torn and given to another. The, The language of God regretting comes up a few times in this chapter. Regretting making Saul king. That can sound a little bit confusing to us. It's the same sort of language used in Genesis chapter six before the flood. When we regret as human beings, when we regret a decision that we've made, we wish we could go back in time and make a different decision now that we've seen the outcome of that decision. But here the text says the Lord, Lord's regret is very different than that. The Lord knows all things. The Lord does not regret in a human sense in the way we regret, for he knows exactly what would happen with Saul. He's not surprised by it. But nevertheless, the Lord is still grieved by Saul's actions. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But nevertheless, the Lord is sorrowful over Saul's disobedience. And to fulfill the word of the Lord, Samuel completes the mission by killing Agag. While Saul disobeyed, Samuel the prophet will obey. Let's read in verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house, his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. With Saul's pride, with his presumption, with his disobedience to the Lord, we see ourselves, don't we? We may not like to think it. We might not want to choose it. But reading the life of Saul is like looking into a mirror. This is us. We regularly commit the same sort of sins that define Saul's kingship. And Saul's tragic fall exposes to us all the need we have for a better king. Saul's failure heightens here God's expectations. God begins to predict it. There's a better king coming. He will raise up a new king, one that is after his own heart. He's right around the corner. We'll find him, 1 Samuel chapter 16, in a little town called Bethlehem. from the lineage of this David, the Lord will raise his king forever. As we join Saul in his disobedience, we are reminded that we need a savior who obeys the word of the Lord. And by God's grace, the Lord Jesus has done just that. While we like Saul garb ourselves in prideful uh, presumption of, of feigned and fake piety, Jesus humbles himself and he becomes obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus is the one who waits on the Lord's deliverance even as he hangs on the cross. Jesus is the one who acts in faith, descending to the dead and rising again as our savior and as our deliverer. Jesus is the one who obeys the word of the Lord while we disobey the word of the Lord. Jesus is the only one who seeks after God's own heart because he is God in the flesh. Jesus is the replacement king. He is the better king. He is the king whose kingdom will never be torn from him. And may we all today gladly and humbly repent of our sin and place ourselves under the kingship of Christ, who is our savior and deliverer forevermore. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbled, confessing that like Saul, we can be so proud. We can be so presumptuous. Lord, we can twist our motives and present ourselves in righteousness all the while outright disobeying what you've said. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's living in active disobedience to your word. Lord, that they would not buck up in pride and seek to defend themselves, but Lord, that they would be humble and contrite in spirit. Lord, we pray that they would recognize their spiritual poverty and come before you desperately pleading for mercy. Lord, we know that for those who humble themselves in repentance, find a savior ready to forgive them, to save them, to deliver them. Lord, we pray that you would save us from our sins as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the king that you have provided, the king we most desperately need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.